pretty much like uh, reality. Like, I mean, human psychology, right? A Newton's law of motion, whatever stays in motion will continue to stay in motion. So those who are usually average performers, right? Most of the time, they'll stay average. Those who are high performers, all right, they make things happen. It's a reflection of human psychology. So when I invest my money, the question I need to ask, the most critical thing that I used that I asked last time, uh, the question has changed dramatically. When I started investing, right, the first question I asked, how do I... Before we begin the podcast, have you gotten your free ebook? It's called the Build a Six-Figure Portfolio Guidebook. Now, inside it, we share with you the tips and tricks to bring your stock investing skills to the next level. The best part, it's only 10 pages long and it's totally free. Whether you're on Spotify or YouTube, the link to download is in the description or you can go to www firl.co slash f-r-e-e or www.firo.co slash free all right guys welcome back to the firo podcast today's guest is a dog right uh on instagram at least uh, he's a dog with a darth vader uh, hat uh, his name is agenda goes by aaron goes global he's an author uh you can search up um Either Aaron Goes Global or Shiba Inu Finance. We're going to talk a lot about money, a lot about investments. He is a podcaster as well. So very, really looking uh, forward to this, uh, Mr. Aaron. Welcome to the pod. Hey, thank you so much for having me. How are you, man? It's a, it's a pleasure. Uh, actually, it's uh, this is the first time we're meeting each other. And you know, the internet is so amazing that we can literally just have a chat. And then within uh, you know two weeks, uh, we can be on a podcast together talking about whatever. I think uh, we also interviewed um, Ryan, which uh, by the time you wa guys watching this, you you would have already seen that podcast. But uh, I understand uh, Aaron. So some context guys listening, uh, Aaron's Singaporean, but you're not in Singapore right now. Is that true? Yeah, yeah no, no. I'm uh, around Southeast Asia. So I move uh, on and off depending on uh, where's, where I feel like going now. But obviously, I still have to be back in Singapore to do uh, my stuff now. So I right. actually hop around Southeast Asia. Yeah, but currently, I'm not filming in uh, Singapore. I'm actually uh, filming in uh, Thailand right now. Nice, nice. So I, I guess that would be the first, you know, thing that uh, people are intrigued about. Sounds like you are a, a nomad in, a, in some ways. And yeah, yeah. I, I want to start by asking you, like, like, what do you do actually for work? I think a lot of people who follow you on uh, Instagram get a hint, but maybe you want to understand a little bit more now. Hey, generally, uh, for me, I started out <clears throat> uh, in insurance, right? So in my early 20s, right, uh, basically I came off army. So Singaporeans, mm -hmm. for guys, uh, the first two years, we need to go to the army. Then after that, you know, once we're out, then we are free to do uh, whatever we want, right? right? Um, and I think um, when I first came off army, I think the issue is that I had no money. Mm -hmm. right so that's my story is um i really didn't have any money with me at all so the first thing that i needed to do was basically to just go and uh earn it lah, right so the first uh after i came off army the first thing i needed to do was to find a job right so i did uh quite a number of things i went to work then also uh, stumbled upon insurance so i started my career uh in insurance in insurance right i think that's quite typical amongst like a financial consultant 
systems. That's where we start. Then along the way, you know, we started to grow our network. You know, along the way, I grew my network. Then I met uh, people who were good with money. Then I also started to meet uh, people um, <clears throat> in uh, C-suite executives, then business owners. Then along the way, also, I also started to learn how to invest my money. Right. So, and that's why I create a lot of content these days uh, on my Instagram channel. Right. Because um, I think the, the reason why I started it, right, was because uh, in my experience, I've met quite a number of people in personal finance, right, who are very good at uh, being employees. You know, some of them mm-hmm. are very like high flyers. They're very good employees. They're very good in their careers. But when it comes to the realm of like um, actually investing your money, right, and managing your wealth, right, I would say that not a lot of them are pretty good at that. Right. And that's something which um, I think not many content creators are actually good at making because I think there is a very wide like variety of, of like personal finance, right? Personal finance is like once, you know, the first level is like <clears throat> once you create, uh, once you get a job, right, the first thing you want to do is basically build your wealth. Yes, yeah. you first attain a financial independence, right? So financial independence, I think most people can achieve within the first five years of work, especially if you're in your early twenties, right? Yep. Then after that, your financial independence, independence, really, right? Then the next thing you want to do is that you want to plan for your liquidity events in life, like Some of them, you know, when you hit twenty-five, you want to get married. Mm-hmm. Then you want to have kids in like maybe like age thirty. Then that's when you start to plan your finances. Now, uh, in a grand scheme of things, right? I think one particular area that hasn't really been focused on, right, is actually wealth creation. Right, right. Right, so which is why, like, uh, we're here today, la, here today to talk about investing. And I, uh, from experience, right, even for myself when I started, right, uh, I knew nothing about investing. I knew nothing about finance. I didn't take a major in finance, right? So a lot of these things uh, which I share on my own channels as well as what I'm going to share today is basically a lot of things which I self-taught myself. Right. right? I went through a lot of causes myself and I also, like, invested my own money and things like that, la. So hopefully, you know, we're able to like touch on that. I will. Don't worry, I will. But you know what I find interesting in addition to your thoughts about investing, which obviously we'll get super deep into, but it's actually your views on on, uh, personal finance uh, as well, right? Um, You talk about insurance. But I I always want to ask a Singaporean this because I, I, you know, from on this side of the causeway, uh, I do hear, you know, um, things like it's unfair, right? For guys to start two years later compared to girls and they feel like they're behind. And of course, you're Singaporean, I can agree. It's a it's a it's a very comparing culture, right? So imagine yep. if you are 25 and then you go into the workforce, you see uh not just someone but a, a, a woman, again, not to be sexist, but you no, know, a woman, you know, earning more than you. Right. Um how 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 do you uh, some of our viewers are Singaporeans, but what do you think of that? Okay, I would say that it depends on how you utilize the time in your two years, right? Because there are some people who go inside army then they felt it was a waste of time. But for me personally, I enjoyed my time in the military quite a bit. Um, I guess one of the biggest drawbacks in the army is that for the first two years, maybe like, you know, number one, you're very young. So usually like when you go into army at like age 19 and 20 years, so you don't really have a very clear idea of what you want to do. Like it's very rare that I go in inside army and then I find one person who is like really like very set of on course. what he wants to achieve in, in life. So usually a lot of the times we go in with our boys, right? I think we are very clueless about what we want to do. So in the two years, I guess uh, what happens is that because you don't have a lot of access to uh, internet resources because you can't bring it in, right? So what you eventually end up doing is that in the two years, you spend a lot of your time reading, uh, making friends and basically getting to know people. 
And right. of course, uh, you train and do that stuff. Lah. And of course, ongoing, I, I think what, what was uh, probably like on the harder side for most guys is not really like, the two years, but rather the ongoing reservice that we have to do every year for the for 10 years. So every year we're called back. Then, you know, it, it's quite disruptive. But I mean, end of the day, we just do a part to like do that. Lah. But to answer your question, whether or not like it's unfair for the guys in the two years, I personally think it's okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Because in the grand scheme of things, I think it's worth that price of time and commitment uh, to be a Singaporean. Yeah, yeah, because I've traveled around ASEAN enough. You know, I've been around ASEAN enough to know that uh, as a Singaporean, we're quite lucky. Oh uh, yeah, in, indeed, right? Yeah. And that's the price to pay to maintain the security, uh, right? Yeah. So it's like, I mean, um, there's nothing much. I can complain about lah because I think uh, me being born in Singapore has given me ample opportunities, you know, to basically do what I do, right? right. And uh, gave me a place for education, gave me a very uh, stable government, right? And most importantly, it gave me the the strong currency, mm. right? And then there's right. a lot of opportunities here. Then you also meet, it's also quite uh, metropolitan, right? So you meet a lot of people from uh, around the world lah. So and most of all, you know, speaking English, being able to converse in Mandarin, being bilingual is a very strong advantage. Yeah. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, and of course, the taxation laws here are very good. Yes. You know, as an investor, if you talk about like investing, right, then Singapore, I think, is a, one of the best places for uh, taxation if you want to grow your wealth. Actually, which is why you see a lot of these very high net worth people they come to Singapore, right? A lot of hedge funds, etc. They actually base their operations in Singapore. Yeah, that's true. But I, you know, I know I speak to a few Singaporeans as well, and. Not all of them feel this way, where they feel that, you know, with, uh, you know, housing prices. Okay, I know like food generally, people are quite okay there. But when they talk about whether it's like, uh, you know, education, uh, housing, uh, cars, transport, and all that, um, they feel like inflation is is catching up to them. And But what I'm hearing yeah. you saying is that, no, it's actually a great launch pad for, for yourself. So why, like, how... How would you, what advice would you give to these people who feel like, you know, Singapore is, it feels like a trap and that things are limited and, you know, things like that? As a Singaporean, right? Uh-huh. You're, you have two very powerful weapons that most people do not have. The first thing is your ability to speak English. English proficiency in Singapore is easily first world standard. So yep. you can literally go to anywhere in the world and perform first class without any issues. Right. The second important thing that you have as a Singaporean is your passport. Mm-hmm. Right. Because your passport can allow you to go to many different countries, visa free. Most of the time, you will not have any issues with immigration overseas. Right. So these are the two very powerful weapons that every single Singaporean have at their disposal, especially if you're a millennial. Right. Then uh, go in the earlier generation. So when people say that Singapore has no opportunities, I really beg to differ mm-hmm. because I would say that uh, I have seen time and time again, right? Um, even in my own business, right? Where I see very young people, right? Within one generation, uh, some of them, right, can be from a place, from a home, right? Where they come from very like humble beginnings. And within one generation, uh, they can rise up to be a corporate C-suite executive if they want to. So in terms of social mobility, right, um, it's actually quite good compared to other ASEAN countries. Because right. if you, I mean, you don't, I mean, Singaporeans, if you head overseas, you will start to see like the social mobility is just very tough. Like in Singapore, within one generation, right, like it's actually possible to just be a millionaire 
in Singapore, but on first world standard, uh, just being an employee. Yeah. You don't get that. You don't get that a lot lah when you go to uh, overseas. Of course, you if you compare around ASEAN, that is one thing lah. But if you go towards like uh, maybe places in Europe, maybe places in US, that might be a different story lah, right? Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. Interesting, interesting. So you you um you also mentioned that you you run a business, right? You want to share a little bit about that before we go into the juicy investment stuff. Yeah. So mostly my business is more uh, done on consulting. Right, so broadly, I basically just uh, speak to SMEs, right? Then sometimes they have like things like financial questions that they have, then they need to ask me about it. Then my job is to basically translate whatever the banker says so that the client can understand and try to get them as best, to get them the best terms as possible. So in, essentially, I'm like a consultant, but more like a self-employed consultant. Right. So maybe yeah. like, I mean, to give an example, maybe if a particular SME wants like some sort of loan, Right, and yeah. they want to understand some of the covenants and the terms and all that. They come to you, lah. Right. Yes, correct. So, uh, I've done quite a wide cases in uh, dealing with. Basically, I'm like a middleman, lah. So you just think like a lawyer, but for financial matters. You know what? Excellent. That's a very good elevator pitch. I I know mm. I, I'm supposed to go investments now, but I, I really want to get your thoughts about insurance as well, actually. Because yeah. it, it, at least for me as a non-expert in insurance, uh, from the outside looking in. It feels complicated. There's like so many different policies you can look at. And of course, they always like to say certain uh, insurance, uh, like they use words like investment linked and all that when I'm a bit skeptical. But uh, what are like for a non-expert, right? What are the things that you generally advise people to look at when they are building sort of the financial component of their entire wealth creation story? All right. Uh, I guess the easiest way to start is just to give a broad perspective that insurance right. is basically just meant to cover um, events which stop you from working, right? Especially when you're a very young age. Mm -hmm. So assume, let's say you start at the age of 20, right? Like me, I have no money, all right? But I know that the future wealth that I can achieve, right, in the next 40 years of my working time, right, uh, is basically, that is conditional on, a, on my ability to actually continue to work, agree? Yep. Right. So what if I cannot work? Right. There are usually three main events that insurers will cover. Death, disability, and critical illness. Yep. So critical illness are things like early stage critical illness, cancer, et cetera, et cetera. So the objective of insurance is very simple. Right. In the next 40 years, uh, because you want to ensure that you can capitalize on your time and your ability to work, and should any of these three events occur, right, you just want to make sure that the insurance can actually cover the cost of your <coughs> event. Uh. So for example, you know, if touch wood, you know, I buy, uh, let's say tomorrow I cannot disability and for the next 10 years I cannot work, at least, you know, I cover myself to ensure that I'm protected. So that I basically just uh, capitalize on my ability to work by making sure that I protect myself against such events. Right, right. right. So the general guideline, which will cover 95% of people, is that for death, disability, it's about 10 times your annual income. Uh -huh. All right. For critical illness, things like cancer, stroke, five times your annual income. Right. All right. And the budget is between five to 10% of your annual income to get all this covered. So that is basically four things that I have dispensed to you that will cover 95% of the scenarios. So you, uh, because I've, I've heard of the 10% rule and I think that that's very, really sensible. And yeah. will you, would it be as simple as, let's say if someone 
who just came out and let's let's say like he's earning five thousand, so he has five hundred ringgit or or whatever currency you want to use to, yep. to spare. Will you yep. literally just tell someone to go to the insurance agents or if the insurance agents approach him or her and say, look, I have 500 ringgit and I would like to be covered by this amount. Can you do it? Yes. Is, it is it that Can. simple? Yeah, of course. It's between 5 and 10%. Uh, oh, look, in terms of insurance, right, the most expensive thing uh, is actually not the money itself, but rather your health. Mm. Right, There are three variables when it comes to buying insurance. The first is the money, the premium amount. The second amount that is variable is your time. If you buy at the age of 45, it's going to be a lot more expensive than if you buy at the age of 20. Yep. yep. Right. And the last one is your health. If you have a lot of health conditions, the problem is that sometimes the insurer will not cover you. Correct. Right. So usually from my experience, right, money is usually not the limiting factor. The limiting factor for this type of insurance products is usually based on your time, which is your age, and also with the health condition. So in terms of uh, like insurance, right, the best time to buy uh, is one day before the event happens. Uh, but obviously, you know, no one can time such things, right? So the best time to buy is when you're very young and very healthy and we don't need it. That's a good one, right? Because that's that's the key. Because it's almost like a, it's a prevention thing. And so people don't like to buy prevention. They like to buy cures. So then if you ah, you know, why do I need to care about insurance? It's, like a, it's like a parachute. Uh. When you need it, but you don't have it, you will never need it again. Yes. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I was taught. It's quite true. La. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Now we got that out of the way. Um, investing, right? Um, we always start off with getting a sense of your the way you look at investments. Uh, and I, you know, I have a few topics here to talk about later on. But how would you describe your investments? And also equally important, how have you evolved, right? From the time you came out of the army, and you put your first dollar investments, what do you believe then? And what is it today? Okay, so I actually wrote like <clears throat> a story and article on my, on basically yeah. to prep for today. So I understand that basically it's about a conversation about like um, the evolution, right? Yes. Of uh, how I actually got to where I am today, etc. So the bad news is that for me, right? Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. I would say is I started as a value investor. Okay, okay. Right, that, that's the bad news side of the equation. And okay. you'll understand why it's bad news later, right? So uh, to start out my story, right? Uh, I started investing, right, seriously uh, at the age of 21 when I came 20, out to work. Okay, okay. One, 21. So it's been about 12 years, right, since I put my first dollar into investing. All right, so at the age of 21, I, I bought my first stock, all right? And I actually bought a bank stock, Wells Fargo. Ooh, at the okay. age of 21. All right. So back then, right, it was basically to be a value investor, right? It was like boomtown Charlie, right? Because it was after the 08, 09 crash, right? So Correct. almost anything that you buy back then, right, you will make money, especially if it's a business that has been hit quite dramatically, uh, especially when it comes to financial stocks. Uh. So a lot of finance stocks back in those days were, were actually like, value territory stocks. So I will buy things like Bank of America, buy things like Wells Fargo. And that is when, right, I realized the power of uh, investing, right, when you buy at a discount. Now, the problem, all right, with that approach is that, you know, I made money from this approach, right, for the first like four to five years until 2015, 2016, all right. Mm. The bad news, all right, when I did that is that I realized over a prolonged period that value investing, right, uh, what especially happens, right, when a value um, company, right, actually reaches maturity and when there's no growth, yep. it will start to stagnate. 
yep. as compared to growth companies. It took me a very long time to actually learn this because I think when it comes to value versus growth, right, innately it really stems from the character, the type of person that you are as a character, right? Because for me, I'm a person, you know, uh, who didn't have any money when I started, right? Um, I'm very particularly careful with money. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't overspend my my budget. And usually I'm a person, right? When I first started work, right, I would save like 80 to 90% of my wow. cash income. Yeah, wow. I'm a very huge saver when I started. So, uh, in fact, I don't even save like, about 80%, 80-90%, right? 80% will go straight into investing. I'll invest almost every single dollar I had uh, almost consistently or every single month. And I did that for like close to seven, eight, ten 10 years. Even today, I still do that uh, on a monthly basis. All right, so uh, it stems from financial discipline, right? There's health discipline where you go to the gym. Then in terms of financial uh, discipline, it's basically about making sure that you invest your money and being very disciplined about your money. So I did that consistently over in my 20s. The one particular stock that made me change uh, my way of being a value investor, right? Is actually Amazon. Right. Right. So I bought Amazon, right? When around 2011 or 2012, right? And that particular stock, right? Made me change the way that I invest till today because it took me about 2015, 2016, right? My biggest holding right back then was still in the financial sectors, right? But then uh, as the time start to go on, uh, I start to realize, right? That value stocks, right? Once the run is over, right? You cannot really hold the company for long-term, right? Because when you buy um, investment, right? Usually there are also three variables, right? When you talk about one thing to make returns. The first variable is how much you pay, right? In the, the beginning, right? The second variable is your time cost, right? And the third variable is your portfolio allocation. Because right. when you talk about returns in a portfolio, right? These are the three main variables which will drive pretty much your return on a consistent basis, correct? Yes. The first is like portfolio allocation, right? If you allocate too little to your best performing ideas, right? Then you are going to do worse than the S&P, right? The second thing is that if you... <laughs> Let's say you buy a, let's say I give you a typical example. You buy a value stock. Usually, right, if the value stock is undervalued, when you buy into it, right, usually number one, there's a reason why it's undervalued. And number two, in order for you to make return from that particular value stock, right, there needs to be a catalyst inside for you within the next two to three years, right, to ensure that the stock operation will go up. And usually what happens is that if you go to most of these value stocks, either they, their stocks have been bashed so hard through a 0809 crisis where people are so scared that they dump everything. Then within like three to four years, it just revert back to the mean. The second thing is that there's a liquidity event, right? Mm-hmm. And usually using such liquidity event companies uh, is because the reason why the stocks are pretty cheap is because there's no publicity and no people covering the stock. So these are very small market cap tell stock where they have huge assets, right? And you can buy things at book value, 0.3, 0.4, sometimes even 20% book value. And sometimes, right, the stock price, right, is even cheaper than the amount of cash they have in the balance sheet. Yeah. Right. The question is why, why when you look at this company, why is it that they are trading the amount? Very simple because <laughs> value stocks usually, uh, they stay value for a reason. And the main reason most of the time is because the business is usually small for a reason. Because sometimes the businesses, when you look at in these type of companies, right, the business cannot scale, the business cannot grow. And this business has been stagnating for the last four, five, six years. And the worst part is sometimes the management don't want to do anything to actually like free up the capital. Correct. Right. So like the way I see it, right, when I started value investing, right, 
I see as I am looking, you know, Warren like to say he pick up cigar butts, right? I, I look at it. Uh, it's basically, I look, I find the lemon uh, that has dropped from the lemon tree. I pick up the lemon, I squeeze the lemon, right? I throw away the lemon. Then yeah. I just drink the lemon juice. That's how I look at it. Growth investing, like Amazon, right? Is that I buy the entire tree that has no lemons yet. Then I just wait for the tree to grow lemons so that I can have an endless stream of lemons and do no work. Right. That's how I see it, right? So uh, I like Warren's cigar butt approach uh, idea, but I think it's a quite an outdated analogy like, because I don't think most people can actually understand. So I prefer my <laughs> lemon analogy. Sure. Right? So um, over time, what I've noticed is uh, it took me a very long time. It took me like eight to 10 years out to really transition into a growth investor, right? Because it's so difficult for me to take a, go away, right? From this like value investing because number one, it worked for me. Yeah. Right. But yeah. As I started to uh, mature as an investor, right, I finally, like over time, started to break away from the value investing mindset because I realized growth companies, right, if you want to buy a company, uh, especially you want to buy a company with excellent manage- management, then companies that can grow 40, 50% every single year, then companies which can scale to like billion, trillion dollar companies, uh, most of the time, these companies are usually not on sale. Yeah because you cannot buy good management for cheap most of the time, right? The only time you can buy is usually when there's a very huge meltdown in the entire like particular sector space, right? Then for some reason, then uh, they are undervalued. So one of the very good examples is actually in 2010, when you see a lot of these like uh, fan companies where they were on very cheap, you know, last time Microsoft was trading only for 12 PE, yeah, I mean, Apple is like somewhere there as well, right? Yeah, Apple was like at Choppy. Then every single analyst back in those days was saying, oh, this company is overvalued. Yeah, but they were saying, I remember, uh, was it, uh, or, or Samsung's coming in and things like that. So Apple's going to die, competition. Yeah, so it's like when you actually like, I've, I've been through long enough in this particular cycle for me to see these narratives like repeat over and over and over and over and over again. Right. So it's like, you don't believe me, you just take up any of these like uh, interviews right, in 2006. Right? They're always talking about the same thing. Inflation, interest rates, blah, 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 blah. No, it's always the same thing over and over again. But uh, what you realize is that um, businesses that tend to execute, right, usually continue their trajectory to execute right. in business. Because it's the same across business. Like when you invest like an investor, right, sometimes you need to invest like a business person. You cannot just be so grounded by the fact, right, that uh, this particular stock is undervalued. Therefore, you give a premium to it. Because I realized over time, right, that business, because like investing is really, uh, you're putting money uh, with the best um, business people on earth. I think that would be one of the better ways to do it compared to putting with average or below average performance. Right. Because you don't believe me, right? You go, you go to any single company, right? Or to any single team for those of you who are employed, right? Especially sales organizations. Uh, you go and look at the top 10 salespeople. How long have they been there in the last 10 years? Mm. How often do those top 10 people change? Right? Not, you yeah. go and look at the Forbes, Forbes top 20. How many of these people has changed in the last 10, 5 to 10 years? You can tell me. Right? What does that tell you? performers tend to continue to perform. Yeah. Right. And then what happens to those people who are average? Do you think that these average people over the last five to 10 years, do you think they will suddenly jump to top 10? I don't think so. Right. This is pretty much like a uh, reality. Like, I mean, human psychology, right? A Newton's law of motion, whatever stays in motion will continue to stay in motion. So those who are usually average performers, right? Most of the time they'll stay average. Those who are high performers, 
all right? They make things happen. It's a reflection of human psychology. So when I invest my money, the question I need to ask, the most critical thing that I used that I asked last time, uh, the question has changed dramatically. When I started investing, right? The first question I asked, how do I protect my money? Mm. Right? That's the first thing. As a value investor, that's the most important thing you ask. How do I protect my money? Now, the most, in question, the most important question I'm asking myself is not how I protect my money. It's how do I protect my time? Okay. Why? Because as a value investor, right? You might buy something for cheap, but what you are paying for is your time. Because the more you wait for this in value investing to catch up to the valuation, right? The cost that comes to you is not your money, it's your time. Agree? As a growth investor, you might pay a little bit more in terms of money. But over time, what you realize is that your time, right? Amount of time that you spend uh, on this particular idea gets less and less and less because it's on autopilot. Yeah. Because when it is a very good business run by very capable and outperforming people, right? The less time you need to spend on this idea. So what are the key ingredients to find the sort of uh, lemon trees that have no lemons yet? Because not all lemon trees with no lemon will continue to make lemons, right? Uh, there are yep. many growth stocks, uh, as you can see in the recent 2022 uh, downturn. Um, some have done, some have dropped less, some have dropped massively, right? Yeah. So how do you find these, uh, these lemon trees? Usually one of the ways I like to do it, right, is I go to my <coughs> phone, then I check my battery because the battery percentage. Then I look at the top five to 10 um, things that I've been using that takes up the most battery on my phone. That's, that's one way I look for ideas, all right? The second way I look for ideas is I look at things on the ground and see what are fundamentally changing uh, on the ground, right? Because these particular ideas, right, will be very different from me compared to someone else who has physical competence elsewhere, right? Right. So for example, um, you know, there's this medical device company, right, in 2012, 2013, right, which was changing actually the surgical place significantly. I think it was the company who created the Da Vinci uh, uh, business robotics uh, operation. So basically, it was uh, something where it allowed the doctors, right, to perform complex surgery, right, uh, far more efficiently than the traditional method of needing to prepare all the items. So it was a very huge fast grower in their category, right? And if you had actually invested in that company, I think your performance would actually be on par with Amazon. Wow. Right? In from 2012, in the last 10 years, right? Then there's also, I give you another example, things like in Domino Pizza. Right, I think in 2010, if you actually look at the particular stock of Domino's Pizza, it did not grow super fast. Uh. It only grew right. about 8 to 9% year on year, right? But because it was so undervalued, you know, I think the revenue back then, I think it was trading only 0.3 to 0.4 revenue, right? Then in 10 years, right, at 0 0.3, 0 0.4, right? Now they're trading about 10 times revenue. Yeah. So, so it's a growth plus a re-rating, yeah. Yeah, but the growth is a little bit sketchy la, because you're talking about 8 to 9% growth on the F&B business, right? But the return now was actually higher than Amazon in the last 10 years. Yes, I'm aware of that. So, so I mean, look, so that's a very good example, right? Of what I mean, but you don't need to be like super into all this like super high tech stuff. You know, when you, usually when you look for me, right? When I look for ideas, right? I like to look for things that I have been consistently using on a daily basis. Because when I look at it, right, I realized there's a potential. So uh, that's why in 2010, 2011, right, I bought Amazon. 
right? Because I had a very good experience at Amazon and I wanted to try my hand on growth investing because I never tried it. So I put a small position into it. And what I realized is that uh, through that learning curve, right? Learning experience, it was a very expensive lesson because I only put a very small percentage is that um, companies usually, right? That grow the lemons are, usually you will know them over time. It's like the years that you follow, right? What you will realize uh, is that they keep coming back to you again and again and again, right? Things like Apple, you know, if you had bought an uh, Apple phone, right? In 2010, 2011, I think back then was the iPhone 3S Two, or yeah, iPhone 4, like yep, yep. right? You realize every single year, their marketing just keeps hitting you again and again and again. They never stop. Right. And even today, they still do the marketing, market, marketing, marketing. Then you go back then in 2010, 2011, right? There's also things like Netflix, things like Facebook, right? I, I remember using Facebook when it was still, uh, uh, it was, it was still like a very like, yeah. it was like nothing, right? Then suddenly within like four to five years, uh, suddenly you realize that the, the company grew so big. So yes. the thing is, right? I like this to use this paradox, right? And it's called a Kei Kiang paradox, which mm-hmm. is the Hokkien term, right? Or Kei Kiang, meaning uh, you, Think you you try to act smart, uh, right? And what I've learned over the years uh, is that actually when it comes to looking for lemons, right, that you want to, to make sure that it hasn't grown lemons yet, right? Is you don't try to too much to choose companies. Because what I learned is that the more you try to act smart, right? And usually uh, uh, what happens is that you try to pick underdogs. And that is very dangerous. Right. right. Underdogs usually, right? They are underdogs for a reason, right? The only way where you can see an underdog performing to a person, right? Maybe can even overtake like huge, um, huge like companies, right? Is that they actually, when you look at their finances, uh, they have a track record of growing their company very, very fast, right? And then you can see there's a potential for the trajectory to hit. You know, that is one way to invest your money. So, right. you know, you, you're from the value background and there's a lot of emphasis yeah. on the financials, right? For the value people. Mm. Uh, what would you say are the key numbers? Because I, I read one of your posts, you're saying that you are at a point where you don't like to go into the details and sometimes you don't even know the de- every single detail about your investments, but you know the important ones. So yeah. specific for, you know, the financials of a company, what are your key metrics that you look at? You're talking about financials, right? Not not management, not uh, no, uh, no, no, qualitative just, factors, right? Yeah, 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 quantitative factors. Growth rate. <clears throat> Number one that I look for is the growth rate in the last three to five years, right? Usually I, especially when it comes to growth investing, I try not to touch companies which grow less than 30% per year. Right. That's number one, right? Number two, valuation, right? Because it doesn't matter how amazing their growth rate is, but if their valuation is insane, right? All right. Uh, it doesn't make sense for me to invest, right? And the last one, which I quantify the easiest way, right? Where I can tell you within one sentence, right? Whether or not this company is even worth a look at. The first question I ask before I even look deeper into the company is, the first question I need to answer, will this company 10X in 10 years? Mm. It's as simple as that. That's the first question I ask if I want to invest in a growth company. Will this company 10X in 10 years? If the answer from, from this question, right? I look at the metrics, I look at the market size. I look at the ability to scale. I look at what they're selling. Then I do the numbers in my head. You know, if there is a potential, it can 10x. Then I'll go deeper into company and see whether they can execute. Right. 
But if I cannot see the company doing a 10x, I won't bother going further. Which is why the number of 30%, because 30% is roughly one becomes 10 in 10 years. Yeah. Correct. So that's why um, if you ask for a key metric, right, that's really the metric you use, whether or not this company can 10x in, in 10 years. Right. Because um, I think when you ask that question, right, you pretty much answer the question whether or not this company, number one, can grow, number two, can execute, and number three, whether or not they're overvalued. Right. Because sometimes, right, the company can 10x in revenue, but it doesn't mean that you will get a 10x return because the company is overvalued. Right. Right. So, so this one question itself, right, you answer quite a number of things if you go deep into it. Right? So, but I right. mean, the, the part about overvalued one, so that's the interesting bit for me because growth stocks, as you point out, were generally you have to pay up, right? You have to pay up the premium. This is something that, of course, Charlie Munger doesn't use the word growth stocks, but, you know, quality companies, lah, he used the word. How, what, is, what is overpaying for a growth stock? Over, okay, usually when I see overpaying for a growth stock, right, usually this happens uh, when a person does not really understand where this company is going to go. I think that is the most dangerous thing when it comes to investing, that you're actually investing without at least uh, a general idea right, of how this business you grow to in the next 10 years. And I think that's very expensive because even if let's say you're a value investor, right, when you buy a value stock, right, especially if you have a concentrated uh, value stock idea, right? You want to have some sort of catalyst uh, that will ensure that this company will at least double the capital right in the next three years. And that gives you about 28, <coughs> 28 to 30%, uh, which is some power as a growth stock. All right. A lot of the times uh, when people uh, say that they want to buy growth stocks, right? I think one critical issue they don't solve uh, is whether or not is it valued correctly. And this valuation question, right, comes in the hand of number one. Uh, every single valuation metric always comes back to the revenue statement. Agree? Because essentially, end of the day, right, a company can only grow big, right, if the sales number can justify it. Because when you look at the income statement, what's line number one? Line number one is revenue, right? Every single company, you know, every single company, uh, the number one objective uh, is to ensure that you can grow your top line first. Because if you don't even have a top line number, right, the rest of the balance sheet doesn't matter. Agree? This yeah. is why salespeople are paid a lot because you don't have a business with top line. Cox, expense, amortization, uh, administrative expense, employees, all these right, stem from the top line. So the most important thing in every single business uh, is your sales number because if you don't have revenue, the rest of the stuff doesn't matter. So in order to answer the revenue statement, question you need to answer to generate the revenue, right, is whether or not this business, right, the product or service that they create, uh, does it have market demand? And does this market demand uh, is big enough, right, to ensure that this company can grow 10x in 10 years? Then from there, once you have the rough revenue statement, you can calculate or estimate, right, the cost, goods sold, whatever, 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 net income, then net income, extrapolate, extrapolate, then give you a PE, give a PS ratio. Then from there, you can do your margin of safety, right? Margin of safety for value investing usually stems from book value. Agree? Usually you look at the book value. 50% of uh, cash, whatever, enough margin of safety, right? Growth investing, your margin of safety is not the book value because most of the time, you're paying two or three times your book value. Your margin of safety is basically how much can this business grow estimatedly, right? Then from there, how much are you paying right now? So assuming, let's say, you buy a company that's have a revenue of 100 million right now today and you pay, let's say, 200 million, but you know that this company, right, in the next 10 years can maybe achieve 
$2 billion. That's the 20X. Then if you achieve $20 billion, right? Sorry, $2 billion, yeah, that's 20X. Yeah. $2 billion, right? The question you need to answer, right, is if it manages to hit $2 billion, right, usually a few things will happen. The first thing will happen is the analyst coverage will increase. Second thing will happen is that the likelihood of it being a growth darling will increase. The third thing that will happen is that most of the time, when all this coverage is increased, right, this company right, will have a bigger marketing power. They usually have an IR relation. And yeah. usually right, the, the, the stock, in terms of being able as being accessible right, to institutional investor increases. Agree? So based on this, right, usually uh, if you hit a $2 billion company, right, the valuation, right, usually the, the multiple will increase compared to a $100 million company. So from there, right, usually a lot of people like to value things based on book value, but a lot of the quantitative things, right, that goes into the valuation of a company, especially when a company is a public company, right, the factors of it being institutional grade, you no know, big money coming in, hedge funds buying it, all these type of metrics, right, you do need to put it into account when you value the business. Correct. It, it just it signals the maturity, right? And where, that's where why you see uh, Domino's Pizza. La. <laughs> that's a, the, the typical example is you look at Domino Pizza. Why did they do better than Amazon? Because they went from non-institutional grade to now everybody wants to, any, anybody in the F&B, they are so struggling for growth, right? you know, tries to buy them. Fair enough. Um, you know, uh, you, a lot of what you say reminds me of what, um, you know, Peter Lynch talks about. And I know you, not recently, but I know you had a <coughs> very interesting post on your Instagram stating that uh, a lot of people misunderstand him, which is ironic because he is known to be someone who, you know, simplifies investing a lot. So yeah. you wanna you wanna touch on your 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 point of view there. Peter Lynch, <clears throat> as much as he says that you know he is on the ground investor, right? Right. I think the main misconception now is that a lot of people don't understand that this person actually made his money from cyclical stocks. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. He, uh, because he categorized stocks uh, into four main categories, cyclicals, growth companies, uh, I can't remember the stalwarts, value, yeah, uh, stalwarts, yeah. and then I think the it's last six one. categories. I'm <clears throat> yeah, yeah, six, yeah, six categories. But in his career, right, I would say that he made a lot of his money, right, from cyclicals. Because back in those days, right, uh, I think it was 19, what, did he make his career in 1980s, 1980s, right? Uh, the, from the 77 to 1990, yeah. Yeah, so during this time, right, it was like the inflation peak, right? So the cyclicals were actually performing very well. And this person, he had more than 1,000 positions. Yeah. Right. So basically, he is a very hard worker, you know. Like a lot of people, right, think that this guy uh, likes to say that everybody can do it, right? I say, but this guy, uh, he's like working almost 24-7 uh, looking for companies left, right, center. That's why he quit after 12 years, so a lot of people don't know, right? Yeah, that, that's why he, his performance is so good. I say, because this fella, he works... I don't know how many hours a week, uh, probably more than 80 hours a week trying to get the investment returns, right? Yeah. So, and among this like 1,000 stocks, right? Um, what is quite funny is that a lot of the stocks that he mentioned, right? I think his biggest mistake was that he didn't hold the stocks that he would have performed best when he mentioned them. Things like Disney, right? Instead, he, because he had more, than, and then there's a reason why he needs to have more than 1,000 positions. Uh, is because this fella, he, he runs inside... Um, uh, he's working for a fund fund company, right? Fidelity, so yep. fundamentally, yeah, fundamentally as a fund management company, you cannot concentrate your positions, right? You cannot concentrate your positions because like, compared to a retail investor, one of the biggest advantage that you, that you have is that you're able to concentrate yeah, your you, investments. You decide your mandate, you do whatever <coughs> yeah. you want, basically. 
Yeah, and you don't have to worry about whether or not um, is it over-concentrated, whether or not you can, um, you know, whether or not the return is <clears throat> is volatile when it comes to concentration, right? So a very good example, you look at Katie Wood, her funds, right? What's her best idea given her size? Was Tesla, right? Yeah, but she can only, I think when it was at the peak, right? The Her position in Tesla was only 9% only, I think. Yeah, so that's a very good example of why, like when you like have find your idea and you can concentrate, but you don't concentrate, then your re- your returns will not be as good as you, it can be, lah. Yeah, fair enough. Right. So Peter Lynch, um, I think as a casual investor, I think his books are very worth reading because I would put it up as one of the top like five books to read in order for you to learn about investing, lah. Right. Then personally. I've learned a lot from him in terms of uh, his categorization. But I guess one of the most important things that I learned from his story is definitely that, you know, if you want to work in a fund, fund management uh, business, uh, it's not an uh, easy job. Yeah, it's definitely hard work. Uh. It's a lot of active work that needs to be done in order to get the total return if you want to perform in a diversified portfolio. That's true. That is true. We'll talk about concentration on that a little bit later on. Um, one thing you are also quite, you have a lot of opinions on is uh, market crashes, right? And uh, of course, you know, this this year is, uh, is a painful year for many investors. And yeah. what advice do you give to people who um, think about cra- market crashes? Because a lot of people are like, either they are waiting at the sideline, um, you know, piling up cash and waiting for, you know, the crash to come. Um, then you've got, the other group of people who are saying it doesn't really matter. It's all part of the game. Crashes are there. You just ride it out. You know, over time, the stock market goes up, you know, four times more often as it goes down, things like that. Where where do you sit in this discussion? I've always been fully invested. Mm. I've never... Okay. La. One instance, I went all cash. And that was uh, 2019. Ah, okay. All right. Before COVID crash, I was 100% in cash close to 100% and bonds. Okay. And that was, in my opinion, in hindsight, that was a mistake. Personally. Really? Even though, even though I made money in 2020 during the March crash. Right. But I think that was essentially one of my biggest mistakes I've made is that I tried to time the market. Oh, how come? Even though you make money? <laughs> I only made about 20, 30% more only. I didn't make a lot more. Right. Because like, if you really like, uh, end up doing the numbers, right? Even if you time the market, when you try to time the market, you need to do two things, right? The first thing is you need to get your exit right. And the second thing you need to do is to get your entry right. All right. How many successful market timers do you know? Very few. <laughs> Very few. But obviously, the ones who always get it right, technically, they always do quite well, lah, right? Because uh, for some reason, they have that age, right? But if you're a person now who knows that you're not a very good market timer, right? then you cannot basically do a strategy for you to play that game, right? So you need to design a strategy that allows you to win in the long run. And this is where I use the mental framework, uh, time. Time in the market versus, oh, time preference. Time preference, right? The the type of investor you are, you need to choose the time preference that allows you to win. Because in terms of like getting an investment return, right? I would say that the short term, six months, one year, two year, is a very crowded red ocean. Because a lot of people are competing for those money, right? If you, especially, I'm not a super rich guy. Uh, I cannot fight against all these hedge funds with computers. The time frame six is not even six months. Some of them is one day, one yeah, week, yep, five yep. days, 
you know, market close, you know, they're fighting against all this. The shorter the time frame, the bloodier the ocean. All right. The longer the time frame, the less bloody the ocean. So the way that I win is that I don't want to fight against short-term fluctuation. I want to win in the long run. Right. So the way that I choose my strategy that has consistently seemed to work for me is that I choose a long-time preference because I know the competition for people being patient is a lot less than people who are impatient. Correct. Right. The faster you want to make your money, right? The more competition there is uh, for people you're fighting and you're fighting with people who are a lot smarter than you, trading a lot faster than you, all right? And basically trading with people, with trading desks, uh, they're running 24-7. So I cannot compete in that. Right. But obviously, there are some people who are able to consistently win. Uh, they have found a formula through trading options, through leverage. <clears throat> and, you know, um, they have done very well for themselves. But also the question I would like to ask, right, is whether or not this particular thing they're doing is actually scalable. Because investing for the short term, right, one day, five days, one week, right, the skill set that's required, right, compared to a person who invests for 10 years, 20, 30 years, right, is completely different. Correct? Because if you are a short term trader, right, you are developing a skill set that allows you, that requires you to be actively working every day in order for you to get that return. You don't build any skill set, right, for something uh, for you to be passive. You don't outsource your money growth, correct? But if you start as a person, you know, who basically starts investing, right, and then you focus a lot of effort, time and energy, right, into building a skill set that allows you to see 10 years in the future, what's the likelihood, right, that after these 10 years, right, you're able to replicate that one more zero. True. Correct? Because the way I see it is that I want to build a skill set that allows me to add one zero every decade for the next five to six decades. So I want to add, you know, every decade of my goal, right, in 10 years is to add one zero in my net worth after I hit 30. So 40, I want to add one zero. 50, I want to add one zero. 60, I want to add one zero. In order for me to do that with skill, Right, I need to be able to develop a skill set that allows me to do that. And <clears throat> usually, it's a very good saying, lah. You know, when you start with nothing, right, your first hundred thousand, right, usually within five years you can do it. Yep. Right. How about that one million? Five years you can get hundred k. If you want to hit one million, right, five times ten is fifty years. years. Yeah. So that's not going to happen, right? So your strategy have to change. So after that hundred k, assuming let's say you hit one million, right. I gonna whatever that takes you to get to one million. I gonna do that ten times to get to ten million. Oh, after you hit that ten million, I gonna do that ten times again for you to get to hundred million. I say the strategy has to change because as your wealth start to get bigger, right, your strategy need to correlate right with the amount that you have at hand. So it's okay for I think for you know for a lot of these like traders, they make money right. The way I do it is basically I just do active work. I just go and work, I can do business. So to me, it's almost the same like, because I'm also doing active work. And basically, I get the income. So once I have the income, then I just want to have a skill set that allows me to grow my net worth uh, without a lot of active thinking about it. Because as it is, right, I'm busy, I'm busy enough every day, right, working on my business and working with clients already. I don't really want to come back to another job. Yeah. True. <clears throat> True. So um, now we go into a little bit about, you know, some of the investments they're excited about. Um, yeah. I know one that I wanted to talk with um, Ryan was Palantir, right? But I thought yep. I'd leave it to you. Um, and the other two, you know, I, I sent you the, the list of questions. The other two, you can bring it up, right? Uh, we, we're going to talk about three ideas. So the, the, the first one is Palantir, right? Yeah. Uh, I am a Palantir shareholder as well. Very painful oh, this year, right? Yeah. But uh, what, 
what is the thesis? You know, what is your idea behind Palantir? What do you think can ten x in ten years? I guess. Palantir is essentially um, Microsoft Windows, right? For people who want to program but cannot program. Mm-hmm. That's the way I see it. I see. Um, I I recently picked up uh, coding myself. I recently yep. in the last like month or so, I've been trying to learn uh, how to code personally on a personal level. Because, I saw right, CS50 um, you were on your Instagram. Yeah. I'm, getting, I'm getting my I started the first three <laughs> lessons then I realized, uh, <laughs> hmm, okay. Still still at the scratch, the the, the cat, cat uh, yeah, part. I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting my ass handed to me on, on this course, but uh, it's a wonderful course. Um, but essentially what I learned through that, right, is that it actually allowed me to understand Palantir better in terms of um, <clears throat> an engine, right? So essentially when you want to develop a game, right, you use game engines, things like Unity, things like um, you know Unity, things like that to to do your 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 games, right? Right. And the way that I see Palantir is that they are essentially something like a game engine, but for companies and business um, uh, SMEs, lah. So essentially, instead of hiring and building their own like building their own uh, programming team, right? It sometimes can take months to basically customize. Right. The way that Palantir works is that they offer a program, you know, for SMEs, right, where they can just install this program, right? Then from there they can create their own customized systems or solutions, right? To look at data. Right. Essentially, that is what uh Palantir does, is that they allows anybody who is, you know, not a super good programmer or in fact doesn't know any programming uh, and allow them to use it and allow them to basically achieve the level of programming, right? Like people who use Canva. Essentially, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's that's basically Palantir. You know, Palantir is, is essentially Canva, Canva. Uh, Canva for programmers, for non-programmers, mm-hmm. right? You think about it, that's what they do. So the question I need to answer is that whether or not this particular product that they offer is it valuable? That's the first question. And from my understanding, right, I think it's very valuable because I can see in the next ten years, right, I think a lot of value will be created from the ideation of. <coughs> computer software. A lot of things, I think, in terms of big data-wise, right, will be created from the software side of things. Because when I go out, right, how much percent of your time uh, do you spend daily, right, interacting with software today? Yeah, the stop counting. Yeah, Here we have, what, two software already, right? Yeah. For me to look at my notes to, to ask you, there's one already. So three. Yeah. Then when you wake up, the first thing you touch is your phone. The last yeah. thing you you before you sleep, hopefully, is your wife. If not, then it's your phone, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, the way that I see it is that if you're going to spend a lot of your time on software, then it is not too far fetched to say that in the next ten to twenty years, right, the very important innovations is going to come from software, right? So the problem is that anybody who has tried to learn to code, right, like me, right, <laughs> is not a walk in a park to learn that, I would say, right? To replicate and to do that, right? It's not something which you can learn overnight. It takes years and years of practice, right? So, Palantir, on the other hand, allows people to tap into that ability to basically just do up a program. So, essentially, it's like scratch like that, right? If you you have difficulty in using uh, program in scratch, right? I would say that if you progress towards um, the harder <coughs> harder programs, like it's going to be a lot harder. Yeah. Because Scratch actually is really considered quite easy already. Mm-hmm. It's really literally made for primary school kids. 
right? So Palantir is something like Scratch because when you compare their data systems with, with other uh, software cloud computing platforms, uh, they, they cannot win. So the way that I do look at this thesis, right, is I go and ask people who are using the program, right? And then I ask them, do you think that this company can take over your job? And so far, from the response that I get in the software engineer, the answer is yes, right? So the difficulty about this company is that uh, I do not have a super huge position in this company, right? But I have this company because I see it as a position, right? With the ability to 10 is 10 years. Because the thing, the main thesis that I'm betting on is that I believe that big data is going to be very important in the next 10 years, right? And I need a person uh, to be able to compile that software and people and have a a platform, right, where people can basically just upload ideas onto the cloud, right, for them to basically have a database, like a library database of ideas where they can tap on. And that's where they call the flywheel effect, Perplantia. All right. Yeah, I mean, how, what about the government side of things also? Because I remember reading that they are also supplying some of this software for like military purposes. Correct me if I'm wrong. On the business side of things, right? I think if you want Palantir to 10x, they need to go to direct consumer. Mm -hmm. yep. I think that is really the main money maker because I don't think they are able, right, to be able to scale up so much uh, to the point that uh, in the government side of things, right? I mean, you, you anybody of you uh, who has been working with the government or trying to get government contracts, uh, it is not a very fast turnaround in terms of sales lead, uh, right? Compared to like, <clears throat> like uh, business to consumer. So I think the way that Palantir is doing it is very similar to how Apple and Tesla has done it in terms of growth companies is that they start with something that's very specialized and niche and to prove that basically they have what it takes right to produce a very good product. That's the first usually iteration. This call your proof of work. Now, the second thing that allows this company to grow very big is they need to have a proof of scale, right? Tesla has made the Tesla tree, right? iPhone, uh, Apple has made the iPhone and they have proven that they're able to scale. So if you want, so basically as a presenter shareholder, right, the most important thing I need to answer, right, is that I'm not sure whether or not they are able to 100% transit into scaling their software because I know that their software is good uh, to basically like target niche and basically set out operations, right, compared to like taking months, right, they can do it in two or three hours. So it's like you want to build an entire like customized like software suite, right, traditionally, right, it'll take you months, hire the engineer is very expensive. You compress the time to two and three hours. Yeah. So that type of like benefit, right, in terms of Palantir is so much better than basically doing it the traditional way. So they have proven that they can give value at a fraction of the price. Yes. The thing that is very difficult, right, is that it's very difficult uh, for people, right, <laughs> for a lay person to look at this software, right, and say, what can I do with this? They need to dumb it down, right, to as easy and idiot proof as Canva. Then that's when they have a business, right? The problem is, I don't know when they will be able to do it. Right, as an investor, that's why it reflects in my allocation. That is not my, the lender is not my biggest holding in my portfolio. It's only about, uh, I think 10 or 15% of my, of my portfolio. It's not a huge portion of my portfolio, but the reason why I set it at 15% is because I think they have the potential, but I have yet to see that they have actually like ex being able to execute. The execution part is when my, that, that's my bigger concern. My biggest concern is not the stock price. Every single investment that I have, right? Stock price is not my concern. My concern is execution, right? Because if I know that a company is going to execute like this year, next year, three years from now, I know the stock price will be taken care of in the next five to 10 years. So when I look at the company, right, my main primary focus uh, is whether or not they're executing or not. 
And sometimes you don't know whether or not this company can execute. The price you have to pay is not the money, it's the time yeah. as an investor. So do you get a sense that they do intend to go to more B2C and things like that, or it's not quite there yet? It's not quite there yet. In fact, I don't think it's there yet at all. So they are still trying to prove that they can grow. And I honestly don't think they've exhausted their corporate clients yet. Right. Corporate-wise, I don't think they've exhausted everything yet. So I think it needs time uh, for them to get there. So I'm giving this company a good three to five years to showcase that they can get there. And after five years, if they still cannot perform right, then I have to cut the position. Because I think five years is long enough. Uh. Like Facebook, right? It only took him, it only took that fella five years uh, to get to, to the fourth iteration. Right. So Palantir is not a it's not a new company, it's, like, it's quite an old company. Yeah, right? yeah. So publicly, uh, after five years, if the company still cannot perform uh, and like they still keep giving excuses, uh, it's time to move on. So this is a position where I'm watching. You know, I have skin in the game, but uh, I am ready to cut if uh, let's say they don't execute. And that is one of the job as an investor. Right. Sometimes yeah. uh, when you invest money inside, if it doesn't perform, you need to move on. Because yeah. the most expensive thing is not your money, it's your time. Yeah, yeah. That's very true. And, and the ability to just cut it even though it's at a loss. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, okay. Now, this next one is, uh, you know, talk about two other positions you're excited about that is not Tesla. There's not Tesla. Bitcoin and Ethereum. Hmm. Okay, I was actually just going to go into crypto later on. So speaking of Bitcoin, uh, you know, I chat with Ryan about his views already. Um, but your angle, I want to ask you is versus gold, right? People keep calling it digital gold, digital gold. And I think you kind of have a gripe with that. Am I right to say that? Um, <clears throat> the problem with gold is that you cannot transfer wirelessly the main difference between gold and Bitcoin is that you cannot do immutable transfer. Mm. Okay. Right. A lot of people, the main critique about Bitcoin is what if they ban it? Yeah. The problem is you cannot ban Bitcoin. Right? You shut because down all the cannot, computers? Uh? Yeah, you can shut down, you can try and shut down all the computers in the world. Uh, right. But essentially, you're also going to kill a lot of people by doing that. Uh, because uh, as I said, uh, it goes back to the question, like how much of your time is spent with technology yeah. every day? So there's no way on earth you're going to stop computers. And, and the right. example I always used to give is, you know, uh, you know, uh, torrenting sites. Up to today, yeah. no one can remove it. So what, what did they do to in order to solve the, the, the torrenting site? What, what did people innovate? They innovate Netflix, what? Unlimited database for your consumption. Such huge value that you've got no choice but to pay because it's so much better than downloading individual titles every week. Yeah. It's worth the right. uh, whatever twelve dollars. It's worth you the twelve dollars you spend you spend every month. So every single time when there's a there's a, some illegal black thing, right? Basically, it forces company to innovate and give better value. That people look at it is so valuable, they got no choice but to basically pay. Right? That's why you have things like Spotify, right? You pay a Spotify premium, unlimited cloud listening to any song that you want, right? You got things like YouTube, you got things like Netflix. People are willing to pay for subscription. When you look at <clears throat> Um, <clears throat> Bitcoin versus gold, right? One of the biggest issues with gold is that you cannot do immutable, immutable transfer, right? And you cannot basically like take the gold and cross the airport. <clears throat> you try to, don't even talk about gold. I try to take 10,000 US dollars and cross the border. Oh, lots of <laughs> every, questions. Every man. single, right? Try, try to do that. Like. Most of the time, before you enter the country, they will put a very big sign. All right, every time I go GP, they like to put a very big sign. Okay, if you have 10,000 ringgit, please declare in the customs. Right. So 
uh, cash itself, gold itself cannot do that, but Bitcoin can, right? So a lot of people, right, they like to talk about this scarcity element, but I personally do not think that scarcity itself is actually the main um, reason why it will perform. The main reason why I think Bitcoin will perform is because of the immutable transfer network that comes along with it. And that, to me, is actually the real value of Bitcoin. It has nothing to do, oh, scarcity has a, to do with it. I mean, it's like, you know, you kept that for it. Basically, it's the monetary policy for that, right? But I think the most powerful thing, right, that I think most people are very afraid of and legacy finance people are afraid of is that they allow people to do final settlement in less than 30 minutes. Yeah. And you have no power to, to, to change it. You have no power to change the ledger system. Right, which is why I think this is a very powerful idea because uh, when I first started using, when I bought my first Bitcoin, right? Then I did a transfer. I bought a mini ledger. Then I look at it. So my ent- my my net, I can put my entire net worth in this thumb drive, cross the border and no one can stop me. Try to do that. Actually, if you know, your, you know your seed phrases, you can even lose the, the thumb drive. Yeah, and you, can, you don't you even need a thumb it. drive. You just store in your brain. Yeah. Right? So, I do do that in a legacy financial system. I don't think you can do that. No way. Right? No Sometimes way. you do a transfer of the account. You need to, number one, if you want to go overseas and set up a bank account, right? You need to basically uh, go to a bank. The bank account needs to allow you to open up your, your account. You have to strip, you have to strip naked, basically. I know, I know. I, yeah. I, I've i been to Singapore, I think, was it? UOB, I think. Yeah, everything else you want to know. Lah. Yeah, so it's like KYC, all this stuff. I mean, obviously now the financial system for crypto itself is also going to... Um, they're also going to like take a look at it, open up uh, to see. But I think essentially it doesn't negate the fact that the immutable transfer layer is there. So it's like the insurance for the entire idea. Assuming let's say things fall down, this fall down, uh, nothing beats having your own core wallet. Very in true. The ledger. Very true. Now, um, name me some one idea, right? Uh, that you're looking at, but you're not comfortable putting a position so far, but it's really catching your eye. It is sort of hinting at the criteria that you were mentioning earlier on for you to mm. put a position. Uh, Airbnb. Ah. Yeah, Airbnb. Um, I took a look at this company, I think after, during COVID, because I kind of feel that this company has what it takes to be a very good investment right um and i think that in the next 10 years right the trend is that a lot of money uh, the wealth the people with money right are not going to buy holiday homes Mm. that is my belief and i think people with money in the next 10 years are probably going to have airbnb as one of the critical um expenses right for renting and basically being uh having a nomadic lifestyle around the world, right? Because uh, if you are a property investor, right, it's not a passive activity. You know, when you buy property, oh, you need to upkeep no, it, no. right? You need to make sure that, and if you borrow money, you need to juggle your bank, right? You need to juggle to make yeah. sure your tenant pay. Indeed, right? indeed. So to me, I'm not a huge fan of property. And almost every like single person now who made their money in business, right? When I speak to them, right? A lot of them, the biggest regret is that they buy property. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's true. one of their biggest regret. You know, because they have the money to pay 100% down, right? So they don't really care about the leverage component. And one of their biggest regrets is that they have put money inside property. So I think that 
if basically property is not the asset class uh, for, for the new wealth, then what I would think is that what what's the, the asset class for the new wealth? Uh, is a platform right that allows these people uh, who don't need to care about money, right? And but basically they want the freedom to travel around the world to have experiences in multiple holiday homes, right? Is the Airbnb is essentially the ad hoc rental for holiday homes. So when you're traveling think, nowadays, uh, are you Airbnb as well? Yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, talk to any digital nomad. Uh, I would say that uh, if they want, if they they basically like hop around Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia, right? The most of them are using Airbnb, right? Hotels once in a while, you know, uh, assuming let's say that where you go don't really have any good Airbnb. Sometimes you've got no choice to use hotels. But I'll say that a large number of them, right? Who especially they stay, uh, like places in Bali, places in Chiang Mai, places mm. in Bangkok, you know, even like, okay, a KL Airbnb a bit <laughs> expensive. Uh. Yeah. I, I, uh, KL Airbnb is ridiculously expensive, right? But uh, I would say that most of the time, <clears throat> you when you speak to digital nomads, especially people from Canada, US, a lot of them use Airbnb. So that is one particular idea that I think will do very well. And also more importantly, I think what they have done very right is that during COVID, they refunded people who booked Airbnb. Mm, So the CEO of Airbnb, right, has a very long-term view, which is very uncommon amongst public companies. He is willing uh, to cut off his arm to save the company. This is Brian Chesky. Brian Chesky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 This, This guy is a terrific CEO. Um, the only reason why I didn't buy Airbnb is not because um, I don't like the company and I don't like CEO and the management. In fact, I like everything about it. Yep. The only reason why I don't put a position inside it all right, yep. is because I need to <clears throat> fight this idea, right? When I talk three ideas. Right? And mm. basically, when I look at these top three ideas versus Airbnb, right? I cannot bring myself to say that it will outperform the top three ideas. And so in terms of right. opportunity costs, I cannot do it. And when you mentioned top three, this would be Palante, Tesla, and the cryptos. Or? No, uh, Ethereum, Bitcoin, and Ethereum, Bitcoin, and uh, Tesla. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. Wow, that's a that's so a that's the way I look at it, la. I don't yeah. I don't diversify so much. So every single time I add in the position, right, I need to really like put the best ideas, uh, fighting against and each other, and see whether or not is it worth remove some capital and then put it in. And also because I'm 100% invested, so I do have to make that decision. That's true. That's true. So speaking of that, right, like there's this, uh, you know, in the investing community, uh, you know, concentration and diversification is like this eternal debate, right? Because, yeah. <clears throat> uh, you know, we've brought on, you, you'll be podcast guest number, I want to say 72, right? So mm-hmm. of the 72, maybe 60 are like, you know, fund managers uh, successful in their own right. And you've got one side which is concentrated. You know, if you have more than five, you know, what are you doing? And you've got another side where, you know, they've done extremely well, but owning 40 to 50 stocks. And then we alluded to Peter Lynch earlier on 1,000 stocks, right? And he got the results that he got. So I know you're on the concentration uh, camp. Personally, I'm also there, though maybe not five, uh, or in your case, four positions. But what is the case for concentration from your point of view? The cost to concentration is the volatility that you have to take. Mm. And I think that is what most people don't like, yeah. Cannot yep. mentally do. Right. Okay. And the way to solve 
this concentration, right, is to ensure that you have an emergency fund mm. that will protect okay. you in the event that you need to liquidate. That's one way to do it. The second way to protect this is to make sure that your cash inflow does not affect your investing. Uh, Meaning you don't depend on your investment to fund financial expenses on life, a monthly yep. basis. That's true. Right? If you have these two set up, right, then honestly, it doesn't make sense for you to diversify. Very because true. if you find an idea, right, that can 10x in 10 years and you do that three times in a decade, right, you are getting that type of scalability, right? That doesn't require you a lot of effort. Because the more you diversify, the more you need to diversify your mental um, brain power. Right. And the more positions you have, the busier you will be to consistently look at your portfolio and allocate. Right. So personally, from the way I see it, right, you say Peter Lin, she has more than 1,000 positions. How many decisions were responsible for his um, return? Right. The people you mentioned, they have 50 positions. How many positions were responsible for the large part of their returns? Right. 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 You can probably nail down to 10. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm pretty probably sure less. can probably nail less. down to 10. You yeah. know, at Warren Buffett, he said 20 $400 decisions. billion dollar company, yeah. how many decisions were responsible for the bulk of his money? Right. You look right. at Graham, uh, what, what, what was his name? Benjamin Graham. Which company did he invest? Return more than all his decisions in one shot. It was only one, Kaiko. Yes, yes. One stock itself returned more than his entire lifetime. So if you ask me, I think it has been proven, right? That if you are able to identify, that's why Warren Buffett likes to do the analogy, right? IQ will cut stem. You know, inside, there's only 10 or 20 punch holes. Each time you make a decision, you punch one time, right? You basically cut out uh, 5% of your ability to make decisions. Right. So basically the way that I invest my portfolio, what I've learned is the more you concentrate, the better your results because you are also, I think it needs to have two criteria. First criteria is that uh, you concentrate your bet. The second criteria, I think that's important that a lot of people, the reason why they don't do it is because you need to be patient uh, for the results to come. Yeah, that's true. Time preference, because this is not an overnight get rich quick scheme because if everybody can do this, right, then basically you basically nobody want to work. Lah, yeah. Right. Because in order for society to be fair, right. To ensure that people, you know, still need to work. Uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Right. If you want to make money this way, right. Either you, if you want the money to come to you very quickly, you need to put in more work. Right. But if you want to do a lot less work, you know, but still want the money to come to you, right. Then you need to wait longer. Right. So, the way I see it is that um, over time, what I've noticed is that uh, I used to hold quite a number of positions when I was a lot younger because I'll buy value stocks, I'll buy stocks like this. And sometimes I just right. put in a little bit, right? Just to make sure that I can mentally take note of the company that's performing. Right, right, right. right. And then what I've noticed is that over time, right? Usually uh, the one that actually pushes most of the result, right? is only about two or three positions. Mm. Out of 10 ideas, right? Usually only the two or three are the ones that are performing the best. Right. And I would have done a lot better if I basically just did what I just did. I find an idea I like, right? And then I fight it against the best ideas that I have. And I look at it in opportunity cost. Yeah. And what you're going to realize is that if you use opportunity cost as a mental framework, is that you end up having a concentrated portfolio. You do not diversify. Yeah. Unless it's like ultra compelling, which is not usually the case. Or. 
Yeah, because like how often in your lifetime are you going to find multiple 10, 20, 30, 40 X ideas? Yeah. It's not common, you know? I mean, like, uh, I think what is difficult is that it is simple, but it is not easy. Yeah. Right. Investing, having a concentrated portfolio, it is simple for most people to do, but it's not easy to do. Yes. Right. So I I, I want to talk, you know, it's an extension to what we're discussing here. I know you had a very interesting post. This is your much older, older ones. The yeah. the time where, where your post was just uh, essentially what your Instagram story is, is just words, right? Um, In the 20, early 2021 days. And you talk a little bit about rotation. I'm not sure because these are old posts, whether yeah. these are something you still believe in, right? I mean, we all yeah, change yeah, yeah. our views. Um, yeah. you, you, you actually break down your the way you look at investments into three categories, evergreen, three to five year place and red hot place. Yeah. Is that still something you 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 think about? Yes, yes, of course, definitely. Okay. Because I, the way, it's just that uh, I still use the same framework. It's just that maybe the way that I do it has not evolved. Oops. So yep. sometimes my evergreen portfolio now might change. Last time it used to be like um, evergreen idea. So like a Palantir belongs in this category where I know that in five to 10 years, right, it might be the next Tesla or Bitcoin, right? Then basically, like also, I had the core ideas, which is for growth, and of course, the one for liquidity event are things like the indexing. So, for example, um, I know in the next five to ten years, maybe I have some liquidity event, you know, that is going to occur, right? Then instead of putting in a very high risk idea, you know, because I'm not certain, right, whether or not I can actually cash out for the money, yes. you know, I'll put it in something like the S and P five hundred, right? Then over time, is what I realized is that sometimes I will have uh, ideas like moonshots. Things these will be things like. These are pure speculation. So I'm ready to lose 100%. Things, these are things like moonshots, right? Things like Dogecoin, things like super speculative names, uh, which obviously I don't like. Uh, if I lose money, I'm okay. You know, if these manage to perform, then obviously I will be very greedy, take profits and then rotate them into something safer. Mm. So in a way, it's my way of trading, right? Some people, they do option trading, right? But most of the time, I don't do that very often because in order for you to do well in those style ideas, uh, you need to have an environment which is very speculative. Yeah. All right. That's and true. today environment, today environment is not the time to play speculative play. Agreed. Right. Today environment is to buy things that are basically going to be ready and being built right on for the next three to five years. Because today environment, a lot of prices are depressed. Right. So it's actually a good time to buy fundamentally good businesses. Because now this environment, what I'm feeling right, is very similar to how I felt in 2020, 2010, 2011. Nobody want to talk about stock. Nobody want to buy anything. A lot of people, they are drained out. They don't buy anything because they are very scared. Yeah. I agree. I agree. So, I mean, we talk a lot about stocks today. We have to, I want to shift a little bit into maybe some of your personal view on things. And one thing I really yeah. agree with you on is uh, actually this whole um, debate on America. Um, a lot of people, especially the part of the world that we are in, right, are more favorable to China, right? They think that China's next superpower and things like that. And I, I have no doubt that they're going to do fine. But uh, you, I wouldn't say you believe in American exceptionalism, but you do believe that America is still going to be the engine that she 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 was. And yep. I remember in one of your posts, you cited, you know, what Buffett said, you know, never bet against America. So maybe you want to thresh out your views a little bit on, uh, you know, on America in the next decade or, or so. Because, you know, as you know, a lot of your investments are also, right, America-based. Yep. I would say that if the investment that I make does not have any links to America, I won't touch it. Personally. Mm. Mm. Right. Because there is no real system that I found uh, that has worked better than entrepreneurship in America. Right. 
Australia, Australia is one of them. Australia, they, they do, Australia do surprisingly churn out quite a number of very good companies. Canva is from Australia, right? Yep. yep. So um, they do have quite exceptional entrepreneurs in uh, in Australia. So um, I would say that um, what I've learned, right, is that over the years, <clears throat> a lot of my alpha comes from America. Because for some reason or rather, they have a system, right, that most importantly, attracts foreigners into their country. Yes. Step number one, right? They are very open to foreigners, right? They might not be super friendly to brand new foreigners, right? But they do accept foreigners, right? And that is very important, right? Number two, that's very important, is that they have a system, right? Uh, most importantly, the US dollar, right? To ensure that money flows to people who can best utilize the money to give value to the broad, yeah. to a broad population. All right. And they give the money to the people who are the best performers. All right. A lot of people would like to say things like corruption, right? What a, da, 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 da. But honestly, uh, in the last, like, <clears throat> you just walk around, right? Every day, right? What are the top 10 things that you use uh, that's not American made? Or you just look at the top 10 things that you touch, right? How many of them comes from America? You use Google every day. Zoom is from America. What we're recording now is American, right? Uh, the microphone I'm using is also from America. The headphones I'm using is also from America, right? Right. So the investments that we buy also from America. So I think in terms of like, uh, one is one of like personal beliefs, uh, and I might not gel health with most people, but what I believe that is very important uh, for a company to have this type of system, right? Is the idea of free speech. Okay. Yes, there's something they talk because, a lot about. Yeah, and free speech is very important. And there's a reason now why uh, this is a superpower in my opinion, right? Uh, because when the most dangerous things I find uh, on this planet, right? Apart from weapons or mass destruction, blah, 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 blah. Are ideas, you know, that is born out of words. Right, and this is something which is very philosophical. Because I think that um, if you share a particular view, you know, especially if it's a person who is very charismatic, you know, you look at all these like very big entrepreneurs, right? The most powerful thing that they have is not just their execution, but their ability to use words and move people. Right, and that is something, right, that is very magical about uh, entrepreneurism, right? Because when you talk to a person who's an entrepreneur, right, a lot of people who got there, they're able to basically move the team uh, to build something uh, collectively. And this is what a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of CEOs, they have inside them. They have that magical ability, right? To basically tell people to move and build something great. Right? And that is something which America does have, all right? Uh, I would say that China definitely has, has that as well, right? It's not like Chinese, they, they don't have it, they have it. But I think the issue, right, on the larger scale of things uh, is that as a foreign investor, right? Because I'm a foreigner, I, you know, I need to put my money somewhere where I feel safe, right? I would say that um, from experience, right, it's a lot easier for me, you know, to understand America uh, than China. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is something which is why I'm very comfortable to put my investments into America. Because the problem with China is that even though they are very innovative, they have very great entrepreneurs, right? I have friends from China, they are great people. I think what is very unclear for me and very difficult for me to put my money is the treatment of foreign investors. 
that I find is very difficult for me, especially if I'm a small investor. Right. I would say that in the grand scale scheme of things, right, I would say that America treats foreign investor, the smaller foreign investor quite well, provided that you buy quality companies. Yeah. And that's the differentiation. Uh, that's why you, you ask me like uh, innovation, all this uh, is because the country, they are able to create a system uh, that treats foreign money, right? With the equally same compared to yeah. Their, yeah, in the same respect because they don't screw. I mean, if you buy quality companies, I don't go and buy the, the ones with all the, the moonshots. Huh? I don't go and buy all those like terrible companies. So you buy established, good established companies that are situated in America. I would say that they treat their investors relatively well. Right? So that is why they keep attracting a lot of foreign capital into the company, uh, the, yeah. the country, right? Because even as an investor, I will not, <laughs> I won't buy property around ASEAN also. If I have money, I will not buy property in ASEAN countries, right? Because it's, if I have America as like a place to invest, uh, why want to buy property in ASEAN? Unless I have, uh, unless I have like alpha inside, let's say, you know, I have IVE, you know, somewhere, you know, in ASEAN, right? Then it makes sense for me because I have that locality link. But if I have no local ties, I, my money needs to go to somewhere, right? Where my money is protected um, yep, yep. politically, right? So, so far, I've not found a country that protects it as well as America. La. You know, I always use the example for people who, you know, complain about America. I say like, you know, what, what, you know what, whatever your stance on Trump, la, right? One of the slogans he always had was, you know, build the wall, right? And I always ask them, do they build the wall to stop people from going out or coming in? I always use that example. And it's typically to stop people from coming in. La. So uh, you, we can talk about the fiery debates that you can have online, but the, you know, people vote with their feet as the saying goes. Um, yep. A lot of people want to get into America, right? Yep. They're racist, whatever, but yet people want to keep going inside. So I find that, I, I always let people know la, about about that. I don't know if you agree with that sentiment that I gave you. No, I definitely agree because yeah. um, you see, uh, the difficulty is that you know, you're from Malaysia, I'm from Singapore, right? Yeah. You know, how often do you see outliers, right? Coming from humble beginnings, uh, rising up and building multi-billion dollar companies today? I would say that, uh, okay, personally, I, I do make a distinction between Malaysia and Singapore and, and maybe that's the next uh, thing that, you know, we can uh, uh. discuss, la, right? So I think with Malaysia, I would dare argue that the mobility is actually better. Mm -hmm. uh, social mobility. Um, you do get people who can become, who can reach the UN, uh, what's the word? UHNWI status. So the ultra high net worth uh, individuals. But to your point specifically, the multi-billion, that is very difficult. That that I can agree. Yep. But, uh, but I, I will cite structural reasons for that rather than, uh, yeah, I will cite structural reasons for that. Lah. But I do know in Singapore, it's a little bit harder. Part of it is because as you described, um, I think that Singapore is quite sheltered because I, I always believe Singapore is built on two, two, two departments, right? The first is the HDB. And then of course, I think your labor is quite protected. So I think that that comfort breeds that that's why people don't go out. They don't see the world as you do. And that's why they, they, they feel like they're stuck, right? That's my point of view. But yeah, just to answer your, your question on, on this issue, yeah. I would say that if you are an outlier, 
All right, and if you come from humble beginnings, right, uh, you need to be in a country uh, that is very non-resistant to change. Mm. Because outliers, what is very difficult now uh, is that they need to have a thriving place, right, for people who will try new things. All right, and if you compare Americans, right, the consumerism attitude in America, Americans Different. by Different itself, uh, these people are a bunch of citizens who are very open to trying new things. Yes. They'll buy and silly things. Is, yes, agree. Yeah, and they will buy anything just to try, you know, so they are very keen on trying new things. Correct. You know, I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, this spirit uh, of trying new things itself uh, is the reason why when you look at uh, places like America, why entrepreneurship is so vibrant, right? Because if you come to a place like Singapore, right? Um, change is not that easy, la, I would say, right? It's, it's not very easy because um, we are a small country. So, and politically, you also need to be a little bit mm. careful. So I would say it's dynasty, easy. Huh? Mm. Yeah, so it's very difficult for you to say and uh, say whatever you want, la, Correct. right? So, whereas for America, that ability of free speech, the ability to say whatever, you can even start, start up your own religion in America, mm-hmm. right? And be very successful. They have a few religions who are very successful, which are, uh, born in America, right? So that ability, right, itself uh, of trying new things, right, is why if you are an outlier, you know, and you want a very big market, you know, and a market big enough uh, to sustain your your outlying abilities, right? That is the country for you. Yeah, I agree. Right? I, I, because I, yeah. they have the commission for it. La. They have a market for it. Yes. Fair, fair. So, you know, one, one thing that you, you talk about in your IG post also is the difference between Meritocracy and credentialism. I love this discussion because uh, some context, yeah. I, I I do not have a degree. And I, I've been saying this to people as well, you know. Um, they say, they, people blur these two lines, right? Your credential means you've scored certain A's and then when companies or organizations, even governments judge you, they judge you based on this predetermined standardized test. And that yeah. sort of, they're able to quantify your merit in that sense. Now, obviously, the fact that you put a versus there implies that they are not exactly the same thing. So you want to explain why? Your question is... Uh, why are they not the same thing? Meritocracy and, <coughs> and, and credentials. Credentials are not a very good reflection of your ability. Mm. It's a different skill set, isn't it? Right. Uh, credentials, you are basically very good. You have proven that you have the ability to absorb hot materials and con- adhere to uh, deliverables, you know, they yeah. are not exactly uh, tagged to the same standards as real world requirements because you are in a controlled environment, right? Credentialism is a controlled environment, right? When you go out in the industry and work, you are no longer in a control environment. You know, you don't have a situation, right? Where if you fuck up, right? You can just retake the test. Yeah. In the real world, if you fuck up, you might lose the client. Mm-hmm. You might lose that business, right? Mm. And it has real world implications to your income, your career trajectory, and then it has compounded effects, right? In school, you are protected because it's not real. There's no PNL, right? You pay the money to be there. Right. Studying is like one of the easiest things I would say to do la, because 
uh, you are not responsible for PNL, right? But if you work for an organization, you are responsible for PNL. Every single action you do has real world implications uh, uh, with the stakeholders that you are <coughs> working with, right? So when you talk about um, meritocracy, right? I would say that a meritocracy working environment, right? Um, the main way that you know that the system is working is that people who are responsible for results, generally, they are able to grow in their responsibilities, right? And this is the reason why when you go to um, companies, right, where they are very, um, very innovative, uh, most of the time, uh, what their requirements are is that they're not very interested in what credentials you have, unless you are in the education sector. Because obviously, if you are in education, then obviously you need to have some yeah. uh, alphabet suit behind your name. Yeah. You know? But if you are, I think the best form of protecting yourself, career-proof, business-proof, future-proof yourself, right? Is the portfolio and the track record that you have to tell people that you are a performer. Mm. You know? Mark Zuckerberg, the way that he says it uh, best in 2004 is that when he hired people, right, what he has found is that he doesn't really need someone who, who has experience. Right? He needs someone who is very smart and very bright because what yeah. he learned is uh, people who are very bright, they tend to learn very fast and they're cheaper. Uh, yes, because they don't have the whole, uh, well, I've been there, done that kind of, yeah, so actually uh, you realize uh, that a lot of these like, hires, right, they're very young because number one, they're cheaper. Number two, they got energy. Number three, they're very smart. So yeah. generally, usually a young person who's very ambitious, right, even if you give him like six figures, uh, which is like probably might even be less than what you pay an experienced person, right? Uh, they might actually bring to the table more value if you groom them than compared to higher uh, experience gun. Yeah. Because sometimes uh, with experience uh, comes, um, comes, comes, with experience, sometimes it also does come with uh, being jaded in your own ways. Mm, yeah. And sometimes when you bring the experience, uh, it's not relevant to what needs to be happen in the next five to 10 years. Yeah. Okay, so personally, I think that credentials is very important if you're in the education sector, in the government sector, you know, all this, like anything that has structure, organization, you know, uh, stability, all this, right? I think that's important. But if you want to thrive in a place, right, where they reward you based on meritocracy, reward you based on um, growth, right, then I think what's more important uh, is your track and your portfolio. You need to have shown some level of, um, some level of uh, track record that you have performed. You know, assuming, let's say, you're a designer, right? Let's say you're a designer, right? Your portfolio needs to show things like what are things that you have designed. Yeah, you know, yeah. The person who hire you is not going to care. I say, I mean, you, you, I mean, you, you are a producing studio, right? When you hire a person, right? Do you care whether or not he, this fella has a diploma in design? No, actually, you, uh, yeah, we don't ask. Actually, what we do is, uh, even if they don't have a, uh, I don't know how to describe this as someone who, uh, we, we rarely hire, but when we look for hires, we kind of get excited when they are absolutely nobodies and they, they're just here to like contribute. I, I don't know how to describe that, but th that, that is very special. But to your point, uh, no, we do not look at that. And uh, at the end of the day, if they have a portfolio, great, then we can probably pay the person higher. But even if they don't, but they just want to put the work in, you know, we pay you less obviously, but 
we are also okay with that. And the, the one word described that is hunger. Yeah. Exactly. Right? A person needs to be hungry. Right? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. end of the day, right? Business owners, uh, eventually, if you want to build a very, very big business, the most expensive thing, right, that you need to pay for and look out for is talent. Oh, yeah? You need to have bright people in your team because it's very difficult for a business uh, to grow very big uh, with average performers. You want to have the best talent. Yeah. Right? If you are a software company, if you are Tesla, you have Bitcoin, you cannot have average people in the company and and basically uh, expect uh, the company is going yeah. to grow 50, 60%. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. The most difficult thing to solve right, in every single business right, is your talent pool. You need to have very smart, capable, brilliant people who want to come and work for you. You, When you solve the equation, then the only thing that the entrepreneur needs to do is to have a goal uh, that is so big and so huge and so unachievable that all these bright people got no choice uh, but to follow him because he's crazy. Mm. Yeah. I, I remember- uh, Elon uh, Musk is one of them. Yeah, la. I remember Elon, speaking of that, I remember Elon Musk, he was asked about this credential question. Um, I don't know whether he said it or what, but I remember this phrase. He said, the reason we don't hire people based on credentials and, you know, I think he used the word MBAs or whatever is because, you know, we don't, uh, a product is not test taking. I think that was a pretty good uh, yep. uh, re I agree. Re rebuttal uh, to that. Um, yeah, glad, glad, glad we, we, we share views on this. Now, uh, towards the end of the, uh, to the uh, podcast, uh, only, Two or three questions left. Uh, this is more personal, right? Because um, I think we do have quite a few people in their twenties listening to our podcast. And what advice do you give? Uh, you know, people like that. What, what were there things that you wish you did more in your twenties? And what what overall you know list of things that you know people in their twenties should be doing, especially if they want to create life, uh, create wealth and you know maybe even be a digital nomad you know who knows i think that <clears throat> i would say that what holds back a lot of people right mm -hmm. uh i like this phrase la. um there is someone out there with half your iq achieving 10 times of what you have right now absolutely yep right no matter where you are and this particular phrase i like it so much right it's because i've experienced it firsthand uh, when I see people around me, when I uh, talk to stakeholders, usually what stops people from achieving things that they want is has nothing to do with IQ, but rather self-doubt. Mm. Oh, okay. Self-doubt. They doubt themselves. And a lot of the times, right, you will see that people who perform very well, uh, ironically, uh, tend to be people uh, who are not smart enough to doubt themselves. Sometimes, sometimes, not all the time. All right. There's, there's a healthy balance there. Uh, but I would say that um, for young people, right, in their 20s, I think what you need to be very clear about is your goals in life and what you want to achieve. Because I would say don't think that money is a problem because given enough time, right, given enough time, I would say a large portion of people in their 20s in the next 40 years are financially, monetarily, money is not a problem. All right. The main problem a lot of people have, no matter how rich you are, right, is how much time you have. Mm. Right? Because the most important resource uh, that anybody has, even in your 20s or 30s, uh, it's not money, it's time. Yeah. Right? Because eventually everyone runs out. 
So the best advice I can give to a person who is in 20s uh, is to be very clear about what you want to be spending your time on and work towards it. Yes. Because I think that is a very good investment and something which you should definitely do in your 20s. Because if you don't do that, especially when you have a lot of energy, you have a lot of time, you know, you don't have a lot of commitments, you have no kids, you know, you're not even married, even if you have a girlfriend, you're not married, so, you know, you're fine. You know, you don't have a lot of commitments, right? I think you need to spend a lot of time uh, sitting down and asking yourself, uh, what do you want to spend your time on? Because time uh, is a resource, right? That you are spending on every single day, whether or not you like it. Yeah. Right. If you decide to do a career path, you are spending time on it. Let's say you want to be a, let's say you want to be a digital nomad. Let's say, but right now you're doing, you're working eight to five. What can you do every day to work towards that goal? Give yourself a time frame. Yeah. Five years, three years, four years, five years. And assuming that say you don't hit that goal, right? Let's say you spend two years on it, but somehow you don't hit goal. But the key thing is that you started. And when you start, what will usually happen is that if you realize that the problem cannot be solved, usually you move on to the next thing to try and solve the problem better. Yeah. So in your 20s, right, what I really believe is that you need to be very clear about what you want and just go for it. Yeah. Because I a lot of people, right, they are always being tied down to this notion uh, that money is the limiting factor. Actually, it's not. Right? If you do enough, uh, if you do uh, smart, you work smart, you work hard, right? In a field that, you know, you identify that has money, right? Generally, uh, money is not really not a problem, right? If people can earn money. The thing that they cannot earn back is your time. So yeah. do you want to spend the next five to six years, you know, working for a job that you don't like and then five to six years regret that you have not started on something earlier? Right, because the trade-off is expensive. Uh, it's very expensive because assuming, let's say I'm 25, right, but I'm working in this job that I hate, you know, but then I am so scared uh, to make a change, you know, because I'm in my comfort zone, right? But I know that it's not something that I want to do for life, for life uh, but then I procrastinate, I procrastinate, I procrastinate. I don't make any changes, right? I don't start the process of learning. Uh, then I'm going to end up 31, right? The next five to six years and not do anything about it. And then I'll be stuck. Because by then you might have kids, by then you might be married, right? You have commitments, it's even harder for you to change. Yeah. So people in their 20s, right? Honestly, that is the best time for you to start taking risks. Risks in career, try something new, learn a new skill set, and then have a goal that you want to do. And essentially find something that you like to do that doesn't feel like work. Because that's when you know you don't mind spending your time. Is that old Confucius quote, right? Uh, work, uh, find what you like and you won't work a day in your life, something like that. I mean, I mean, just to, to, to build on your point, I think I was just chatting with a friend a, a while back and, you know, he, 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 I mean, he makes enough, but he, he doesn't feel like the compulsion to make more money. But then he feels like, well, you know, um, but everyone around me is like, you know, they want to make money. But for me, it's like, you know, it doesn't, don't really need, I have enough. But because everyone around him is also striving for more. So he, he came to me asking like, how do I make more money and all that? And uh, he says it's a challenge. Uh, and I actually told him like, hey, you know, you, because he likes to go to Japan, right? So he, this was pre-COVID. So I just told him like, have you ever failed, right? To save up for Japan? And then he said, no, like, he has never failed to do it. Then I said, well, yeah, I mean, that's your answer, right? Because 
you set the goal of Japan being the place you want to go every year and you've never failed that, right? Even though you have budget, you know, so to speak, you got your money is tight and all that. And so my, the thing I told him was like, like what was the objective to earn double what you're earning anyway? And if the, the, the desire is not strong, then like, why do you have to do it just because everyone's doing it? Right. So that was the example I, I, I gave lah to this uh, friend of mine. Okay. We're coming towards the end. And this is some story. Uh, this is one story I think uh, I'd like to end with, um, which I, I, I think it's probably a very underrated achievement, at least uh, in your life. And that is your weight loss journey. Yeah. If I read correctly, again, correct me if I'm wrong, lah, right? And don't feel insulted if I got the number wrong, but you actually hit three digit kgs. At one point. Yeah, more than not not low three digit. Uh, I meet meet three digit. Wait, wait, wait. Meet, okay, wait. Okay, so that was the story. That was the story. Uh, close to 135 kilos at my highest peak. Uh, okay, so what's your height just to, to understand? 1.7. So you have five foot seven. Five six or seven. Five six or seven and one thirty-five kilos. Yes. Okay. At the heaviest of my life. Uh yeah. okay. I have a few questions today. How, how did that come about? And when when was this? When was the peak? <clears throat> that was uh, right before I entered army. Right before. Yeah, because uh, I went through a design course. Not, not to do with design, but I think at that point of time, right, I was very, very stressed out in learning creative ah, stuff. Ah, okay, okay. Right, because I am a natural science stream student. So for me to learn creative stuff, uh, learning to draw, learning traditional like design, it was not an easy course for me to learn. And I think back then, right, I was also very lost in like wanting to do things in my life, you know, but I know that I'm a hard worker. So I sacrificed a lot of my health, right, trying to catch up with uh, my peers, you know, who were doing quite well uh, in the art because in their entire life, they were drawing. La. So for me, a person, when I enter art, art stream, right, the only thing I can draw is a stick, man. Well, <laughs> how, but why, why were you in there in the first place if you were good with science and all that? I mean, when you're young, you don't think that much. La. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Understand. <laughs> Understandable. You feel like doing. La. Understandable. Right? So it's like, uh, but I do. I did appreciate art quite a bit. So maybe I thought I'll try my hand on it. Right? And the statistics for art course, right, is that usually within the first year, right, about 25% of people will quit. Mm. Yeah, the, the attrition rate is very high. It's usually by third year, you'll be lucky uh, if more than... 70% are actually still in a course. So the attrition rate for art is very high. It's because it's not easy course to go through. It's, it's very, very difficult. So I persevered, right? But, uh, and I think I did quite well. You know, that's why I'm able to do things like podcasting, things like all these creative sites and being a creator, right? For yeah, me I love your, your IG tiles, actually. You designed you so them yourself, right? Yeah, 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 of course. Amazing, uh, it's amazing not, stuff. Yeah, but it, came from, but it came from my background in design uh, because I spent like three years of learning design, you know? So I, I've been through like formal training of like drawing, uh, live drawing, things like uh, expression drawing. So I will do sketches. I also do like web design, things like that. I do a lot of that, even typography, all this video editing, you know? So I went through the whole shebang. I even like created a whole animated short. So literally start from nothing, right? I created a anim three, four minute final year project uh, animated short um, by the time I graduated. So I do have a skill set uh, to actually make animation films. Nice. Right. But the expense of that is that <laughs> I killed my own health. <laughs> because anybody, right, who has been through creative, uh, uh, doesn't matter which one you either can do animation, you can do games, you can do web design, you know the difficulty in like 
uh, creating stuff like that, right? Because there's a lot of burnt midnight oils, you know? So it's not an easy process um, to create something from scratch, especially when you have to go through pre-production, production, and uh, post-production, right? The, the amount of hours that's spent uh, doing the storyboarding, going through the, the stakeholders to basically make it into like a film, uh, it is not an easy process. It is very, very difficult, right? Uh, even if you have like five or six people working on it, it is not easy, right? And the expense of that is that because I'm a person when I'm very stressed, I tend to eat a lot, Right, so it's like I just add a lot and a lot and a lot, and then by lo and behold, I think by the time I finish my three-year course, I think I gained like close to sixty kilos. Double your weight, lah, almost actually. Yeah, pretty much double my weight, lah. So, um, I knew the effects of the health because I can feel it. Right, I, I knew, I knew that if I didn't do something, I was gonna die early, lah. Right, so, um, so when I entered army, I stepped on the wing machine. You know, I expected it. You no, know, I expected it was high, but I didn't expect it was that high. You know, so I began the journey of my weight loss, lah. So then from then, right. uh, two years I lost. I think I hit sixty five. You have it. So I lost You're about seventy kg. Yeah, back to original in two years. But obviously, like. So whenever I see things like the biggest loser, right, I know it's possible because I've done it myself. What was the game plan? Like, do you, so I mean, of course, the fact that you have to go through NS means it's like you automatically Easy have to la. lose weight, la, right? So they're really Easy, pushing. Yeah, because you. they give you, because they have an environment, right? So people usually go like the uh, basic military training two months. We are gone. We have to go for six months. Yeah. So I went there. I lost like. A lot of weight. Then I think the difficulty was continuing that discipline. Uh, in the night after the BMT, because the first six months they make sure they push you, but after that, right, the eighteen months is OT OT, more time on target. So in order for me to continue that weight loss, I did whatever I could to lower. So at the peak of my fitness, right, I was running close to ten kilometers a day, every single day, just to maintain that weight. Ooh. Yeah, because I have damaged my metabolism so badly. Right. right? The fact uh, that in order for me to maintain that weight, I need to run that much and eat so little. So at the bottom line, anorexic. So I mean, right, give, so give, give us like, a sense, sorry, yeah, give us a sense, right, of like peak 135 kilos. What was the eating pattern like versus like maybe today, right, uh, at the weight you're at and that controlled manner? I would say that um, at the peak, probably like I can eat McDonald's like three times a day. Three times a day. All upsize meals. Are. <laughs> <laughs> I would just keep eating. And I think the difficulty is also I didn't get enough sleep. Yeah. Yeah, because I was like probably like sleeping two hours a day. Two like, hours like, a day. Like trying to push out like all the, the animation stuff. It is not an easy course because it, creative uh, is not my natural advantage. So for someone to spend two hours and get the result, I need to put in six. So I need to work triple hard, right? For me to basically match out to my peers because it is really not my natural advantage. It's not like numbers and calculation and science, you know, like numbers and financial stuff I can do at the back of my head because that's my natural advantage. But art, when it comes to data, when you ask me to draw, do pre-production, do animation, it is not an easy thing for me to learn because uh, generally it's, it's someone who gets it intuitively. It took me a very long time to catch up to that, to, to that level. Yeah, so a lot of the stress came in Then basically you don't care about it because all you care about is getting better, right? Because you're so focused on like getting better, your health just takes a backseat. And today, today, uh, what's the what's the diet like? Oh, diet! Uh, I actually still eat pretty much what I want uh, But I will eat like Southeast Asian meals. So I eat like wonton mee. You know, I eat like chicken and rice. You know, I eat like normal stuff. You know, but I I think what's important is to eat in moderation. And right. I always actively work out like three times a week. So I definitely will hit to gym uh, one three five every day. 
Very yeah. good. So I don't miss a workout. You know, I always make sure I'm in the gym. Then obviously I also take walks. Uh, and most importantly, I think I'm spending my time efficiently on um, learning, you know, learning things. And to and that when it keeps me occupied, right, I don't really think too much about food. Uh, yeah. So obviously I still enjoy my desserts, lah, but uh, I no longer, you know, um, eat as much as before like, because now now once you hit your 30s right you know your diet is quite important uh. yeah indeed you cannot you cannot like uh, it's no longer the days uh, where you eat three McDonald's meals a day no issue you still can go and work uh, then sleep two hours cannot uh. now I eat one McDonald's meal already I feel like I'm sleeping already yeah wow <laughs> it's not it's just not effective to like um, it's not just not conducive to being uh, productive uh. you know I think um, you come to the point in your life uh, where health is important for you to actually like uh, it's the driving factor for you to be productive at what you do. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. You know, Aaron, there's so, you know, there's so much I have to to miss out, right? I I I wanted to go through all your Instagram posts. Unfortunately, I could only go through some to create the podcast, and we're already two hours plus in. And you know, uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast, man. It's been a it's been a pleasure. Hope you had fun. No problem. I had fun. We should do this again. <laughs> Hundred percent, hundred percent. Maybe one with uh, uh Ryan. Ryan as well, right? Yeah. Uh, I know he had fun. So yeah, you know, if people want to find you, where can they go? Uh, I pretty much just uh, there's only two avenues which I'm very active in. Uh, right now is Aaron goes to my Instagram handle. Uh, but you have to forgive me because I'm now like getting my ass kicked at a CS50, right? But uh, one that I'm very consistently um at is uh, at my podcast. Alright, to my podcast with Ryan. Mm, yes. Yeah. Yes, we yes. we publish like one episode. Every single month. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. All right, guys. Hope you enjoyed uh, this round's uh, podcast. I certainly did. Always a pleasure to get our Singaporean uh, uh, friends to share their views as well. And guys, you know, as usual, like, comment, subscribe. You know the drill. Follow us on Spotify. We are there. And uh, we'll see you in the next podcast. Signing off. See you guys. <laughs>